0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find
0: out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Folks, this is just a quick update on my next live show, which is on in Grady's Yard, Waterford on July the 13th. I'm teaming up with another Irish podcast, Snugcast, and it's going to be a great night the format will be totally different from these episodes. It's going to be a much more relaxed, informal structure where I'll definitely be going off script. Myself and DJ and from Snugcast will be looking at the history of drinking in Ireland from medieval taverns through to more contemporary issues such as attempts at prohibition as well as looking at why Irish people have a somewhat problematic relationship with booze and where and if it all went wrong. It's called On the Lash, From Medieval Boozers to Prohibition Drinking Culture in Ireland. Hopefully I'll see you there. Tickets are free, but they are limited. Over half are gone already. You can get yours at waterfordpodcast.eventbrite.ie That's waterfordpodcast.eventbrite.ie Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast, My name is Finn DeWire and this is Mass Evictions Exploiting the Great Hunger The Great Famine is something we think about as being universally horrific however in this episode I look at a group of people who benefited or at least tried to turn the catastrophe to their advantage as they saw potential in the chaos it unleashed on Irish society in the late 1840s In fact as we are about to see A revolution of sorts swept across Irish society in the final years of the Great Famine as landlords and the British government sought to transform rural society. This reveals a fascinating but ruthless struggle against the poor who had in many cases survived against the odds during the worst years of the famine only to be faced with eviction at the very end. To understand this we are going to focus in on the town of Kenmare and the Ring of Kerry often considered an idyllic holiday spot but as we are about to see the experience of those living there in the 1840s was harrowing. This podcast begins in a somewhat unusual even surprising place that's tourism in the 19th century because as strange as it sounds some in England in the late 1840s were suggesting famine ridden Ireland would make a perfect holiday destination. Now several listeners participated in the making of this podcast and I would like to thank Terry Cullen, Sarah Lally, DJ Walsh, Peter Kavna, Daniel Williams, John Gavin and Hilary Quinn for their narrations. And two quick announcements before we kick off. If you have time, I'd really appreciate your feedback on this episode. It's often quite hard to judge whether content works or not and the second half of the show is slightly different. Now I don't know if my structure in that part of the show has translated well into a podcast format. This was my second attempt at it. But you're the ultimate judge of this and it's your opinion I value most. So if you have thoughts on this show please send them to info at ie. That's info at ie. Let me know if you found it good, bad or indifferent. Before we begin, I want to thank the show patrons, the people without whose support this podcast would not be possible. I've said this on countless occasions, but I'm deeply indebted to listeners who have become patrons. As I say, it's their support that funds my research. Each week, I thank individual patrons and today I want to give a shout out to Ronan Perry, Deirdre, Diane Reynolds, Peter Breen, Maria Carwin, Jack C, Anne-Marie W, Stephen Sweeney, Aileen Hunt and Caroline Burke. Thanks so much folks, it really means a lot. Now let's get on with the main show by starting with tourism of all things, during the famine. While the origins of tourism is something most of us associate with later 20th century package holidays, it has a long history and was well established in England by the 1840s. Steam-powered boats and more importantly trains made relatively long journeys much more feasible as costs were falling dramatically. Middle-class families were increasingly embracing the idea of taking foreign holidays overseas. Indeed, in June 1849, the newspaper The Times of London informed its readers that
2: a season comes in every year when Englishmen are converted into a nation of tourists.
0: While continental Europe proved to be the most popular destination for English tourists, this began to change in 1849 after a series of revolutions had broken out across Europe the previous year. Known as the springtime of the peoples, these revolts had left many regions volatile. By that summer of 1849 the Times newspaper warned its readers that if English holiday makers dared to cross the Channel to France they might find their luggage commandeered to erect street barricades in Paris or in the German states they could even find themselves targeted by marksmen. With transatlantic travel still not possible for most, options were limited in these circumstances. The well-worn paths of the Scottish Highlands, Wales and the more picturesque counties of England were, the Times noted, in a somewhat disparaging tone,
2: more or less visited by all wanderers.
0: The newspaper concluded that Ireland in this context was the best option for English tourists. To sate the appetite of their readers, they listed some of Ireland's most stunning locations.
2: The Bay of Dublin, nearly the whole of the county of Wicklow, Cork, Kerry with the Killarney Lakes, Clare with the Moher Cliffs, Galway with its magnificent bay, Connemara and districts of Mayo.
0: However, while such destinations were stunning, it was difficult to ignore the fact that the island was enduring what would prove to be one of the worst recorded famines in history. In a somewhat oblique fashion, the Times informed its readers that
2: To take part in such an excursion as the one proposed is to combine a duty and a charity. Why should not our poor Irish fellow subjects benefit by the careless expenditure which takes place when the purse is heavy and the heart light? A little stir and bustle would do the country good, and sets heads a-planning and hands a-working. That but for such an impulse might have remained idle and unemployed.
0: While this was minimising and downplaying an event that had claimed nearly one million lives, others went even further. Later in 1849 the book publishers W.H. Smith and Son in London released a holiday guide entitled A Description of the Lakes of Killarney and there was no mention whatsoever of the Great Hunger. This reflected what was a bewildering lack of understanding about the situation in Ireland which prevailed in England particularly in the later stages of the Great Famine while newspapers, politicians and the public alike had long tired of stories of starvation from Ireland, to suggest that the west of Ireland was a suitable holiday destination in 1849 illustrated how out of touch many in England were with the state of affairs. While the great hunger was starting to ease in many parts of the island, in that summer of 1849 the west of Ireland was still in the grip of starvation. Indeed, the picturesque lakes of Killarney and the surrounding region, the subject of W.H. Smith's travel guide, remained a crucible of human misery. There was no doubting it was visually stunning. The travel guide claimed the road from Killarney to the town of Kenmare was one of the most picturesque in the British Empire. But if a tourist dared venture down that road in 1849, what lay at the end of it would have traumatised them forever. The potato harvest in many areas that year had been free from blight, easing the crisis in many regions of Ireland, but it had failed again in Kerry. This was not the only problem facing the people, however. In those final years of the famine, life in many communities was destabilised even further as the numbers of people facing evictions was increasing rapidly. Landlords were evicting people in the tens of thousands, unleashing a revolution of sorts in rural Ireland. This was particularly the case in the town of Kenmare. If any tourists had ventured down that stunning road from Killarney, they would not only have heard the horrific personal stories of the people, but they would have found a landscape physically destroyed, almost as if it were a battlefield. As we are about to see, famine evictions did not just involve evicting the people, but indeed the houses themselves were destroyed and the very landscape was reshaped. All that remained of many villages was a pile of stones. It's people gone to workhouses, America or the grave. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. To understand this, first we need to visit Kenmare. The Kerry town of Kenmare and the surrounding region, like so many others in the west of Ireland, had been utterly devastated by the Great Famine. In 1852, the sociologist Harriet Martineau visited the town and found an appalling situation. She reflected in a letter afterwards.
3: Kenmare, what a spectacle it is, even now, when the streets are not strewn with dead and dying and young men are not employed, as they were in famine times, to carry the dead.
0: Martineau, however, could never have guessed just how terrible events in Kenmare had been over the previous six years. Father John O'Sullivan, the Catholic Vicar General, essentially a representative of the Bishop of Kerry, who was a resident of Kenmare, captured these horrors. Only a year and a half into the famine, in early 1847, O'Sullivan was inundated with starving people calling to his doors seeking aid. He described this in detail in a letter to Charles Trevelyan, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in London, in February that year the cries of starving hundreds that besieged me from morning
4: until night actually ring in my ears at night. I attended myself a poor woman whose infant, dead two days lay at the foot of the bed, and four others nearly dead in the same bed, and horrible to relate, a famished cat got up on the corpse of the poor infant and was about to gnaw at it but for my
0: interference. It was somewhat ironic that travel guides and newspapers would encourage tourists to visit this region when Father O'Sullivan would reflect in his own diary in February 1847 that he wanted to be anywhere but Kenmare,
4: I often think of taking myself to some other country rather than see with my eyes and hear with my ears the melancholy, spectacle and dismal wailing of the gaunt spectres that persecute and crowd about me from morning until night imploring for some assistance.
0: In the coming years, the famine continued to impoverish and devastate this community. People with no option increasingly turned to an already overcrowded and disease-ridden workhouse where their misery continued. In 1849, when the potato crop in many areas was healthy, relieving the famine, it had failed again in Kerry and Kenmare was condemned to another year of hunger. Already having suffered the unimaginable, in late 1849, the very foundations of life in this community began to change with the arrival of one individual that was William Stuart Trench Trench was a man armed with what were dangerous ideas and an iron will to enforce them he would wield huge influence over life and in some cases death in Kenmare and his story explains the very important closing phase of the Great Famine which was unfolding not only in Kerry but in many communities particularly in the west of Ireland Stuart Trench had started life in relative obscurity. The youngest of 15 surviving children, his youth was overshadowed by a tragedy. Although he had actually been baptised Richard, his name was changed to William in memory of a younger sibling of that name who had died as an infant. The son of a wealthy clergyman, he was educated in Trinity College, Dublin. However, with seven older brothers, he could not hope to inherit much and William had to forge his own path in life to a certain extent. On completing his education, he took an interest in land management and by the 1840s he was working as a professional land agent, essentially the figure who managed landlord's estates. This position of land agent which would bring William Stuart Trench to Kenmare left him with a wide range of responsibilities that could vary from landlord to landlord. While the basics included the collection of rent, William was a fervent believer that Irish agriculture needed to change drastically and as a land agent he tried where possible to carry out these changes. This involved measures such as increasing farm size and where possible switching from growing crops to raising cattle herds which were less labour intensive and more profitable. Now This was deeply controversial as both measures involved large-scale evictions of existing tenants to make way for bigger farms. To achieve this, William Stuart Trench proposed radical solutions. Before the famine, when working as a land agent for the Shirley estate in Monaghan, he suggested his employers should pay for large numbers of their tenants to emigrate to North America. While this involved a costly outlay of money, it allowed small farms to be amalgamated into larger holdings that could accommodate cattle ranches. Perhaps most importantly, it guaranteed limited resistance from tenants who would be moved out of the country. While this was not implemented until after he left Monaghan, Trench proved himself to be of a new breed of land agent who prided themselves in having a hard-headed approach. Their bottom line was the profitability of the estates they managed, the impact or otherwise on tenants, was very much a distant and secondary concern. So when William Stuart Trench was appointed the land agent to the largest estate in South Kerry, which encompassed much of the land around Kenmare, this was deeply troubling for a community struggling to escape from the devastation caused by the famine. In late 1849, Trench took up a new and challenging position, when he was appointed agent for one of Ireland's better-known landlords, Henry Petty Fitzmaurice, the 4th Marquis of Lansdowne, a well-known politician in the ruling Liberal government. However, despite owning some 96,000 acres of land in Kerry, Fitzmaurice was something of a stranger in Ireland. Born in England, he spent most of his life focused on his political career. The running of his estates in Kerry, which were centred around the town of Kenmare, had always been left, in the hands of a land agent the previous agent before the arrival of william trench was a man called james hickson who had held the post for over 3 decades and was something of a hard act to follow for trench he had been highly respected by the tenants something which william trench may have been taken aback by many land agents in 19th century ireland were despised indeed when his predecessor on the shirley estate in monaghan had died the tenants had lit bonfires to celebrate his passing James Hickson and Kerry though, while popular with the tenants, had left a very problematic situation from the perspective of the landlord at least. Hickson did not belong to the new breed of land agent like Trench. He had never rocked the boat and adopted a light-touch approach, something the tenants liked. Most importantly, he very rarely enforced a £5 fine for every extra house built on any farm. This was designed to curb the practice of subdivision which was common among poor Irish farmers. This saw them divide the farms they rented between all their sons rather than giving the entire holding to their eldest. Therefore with each generation the farms got smaller and smaller, the families got poorer and poorer and increasingly dependent on the potato. Hickson during his tenure had done nothing to stop this practice. For a moderniser like Trench he was abhorred by this. Although in Hickson's defense, his employer, the Marquis of Lansdowne, seems to have been happy once the rent rolled in, which it had done prior to the famine. This, however, changed drastically with the onset of the Great Hunger. Kenmare, as we have seen, was hit hard, and unsurprisingly the large numbers of poor tenants on the Marquis of Lansdowne's estate quickly fell into rent arrears. However, subdivision and the large numbers of poor farms also created an even bigger problem. This was because the marquis, as Lansdowne, was left with an enormous tax bill as he was liable to pay the poor rate which funded workhouses and famine relief after 1847 for any tenant who lived on a farm valued at less than £4. Very quickly, the Kenmare estate was losing large amounts of money. When William Stuart Trench arrived, he had radical ideas as to how he would reverse this problem. However, given many tenants hung on to life by a thread, any significant change was potentially very dangerous. Even though William Trench didn't arrive in Kenmare until very late 1849, there was no question the region was still struggling. While the situation in Dublin had improved and the successful harvest that year lifted many rural areas out of danger... Kenmare was left behind as such. The localised failure of the potato crop in Kerry had condemned the region to a fourth year of famine. Years later, Trent reflected on the situation that he faced when he arrived and how the poor were still utterly dependent on workhouse aid.
4: The famine, in the strict acceptation of the term, was nearly over, but it had left a trail behind it almost as formidable as its presence. The mountain district around Kenmare had not escaped its effects.
0: He extrapolated on this.
4: It was true that people no longer died of starvation, but they were dying nearly as fast of fever, dysentery and scurvy within the walls of the workhouse. Food there was in abundance, but to entitle the people to obtain it, they were compelled to go into the workhouse until these were crowded almost to suffocation.
0: However, ultimately Trench's primary concern was not the people, but the productivity and financial position of the Marcus of Lansdowne's estate. And there was no question that during the famine, the estate had plunged off a financial cliff. It was losing money hand over fist. Many of the tenants, unable to feed themselves, hadn't paid rent in years, while the poor-rate taxes the Marquis owed were soaring. On inspecting the books and conducting a survey of the estate, Trench blamed the nub of this problem on his predecessor, James Hickson, and his approach. Some years later, he again reflected. The estate had been neglected. No restraint
4: whatever had been put upon the subdivision of land.
0: He went on in the same passage to reveal what can only be described as an incredibly authoritarian view of his rights as the agent of the landlord to control the lives of the tenants, as if they were livestock. These words we are about to hear would haunt some in Kerry in the coming years.
4: Boys and girls intermarried unchecked, each at the age of 17 or 18, without thinking it necessary to make any provision, whatever, for their future subsistence, beyond a shed to lie down in and a small plot to grow potatoes. The estate was, in fact, swamped with paupers.
0: Financially speaking, the Kenmare estate clearly needed restructuring, but what the tenants needed most in 1849 was a humane approach that recognised the precarious position they lived in. However, what they got was William Stuart Trench, a man who had little interest in their plight. Despite the fact the tenants had suffered from years of famine, Trench was adamant he was going to push ahead and restructure the estate and to hell with the consequences. Indeed, for men like Trench, the famine was an opportunity to drive through major changes as the people were weakened and would struggle to mount resistance. George Trench's first move indicated, initially at least, that he might have been motivated by humanitarian concerns, something desperately needed in Kenmare in this later phase of the Great Hunger. The Marcus of Lansdowne had made large amounts of money available and Trench decided he would hire the poor of the estate which would allow them to leave the overcrowded and miserable workhouse. However, once he launched work schemes, Trench was quickly inundated with people who had no tools and were actually just too weak to work. Furthermore, once they had jobs, they had to leave the workhouse and many had nowhere to go so they became homeless around the streets of Kenmare, which led to complaints from the townspeople. This scheme quickly became unworkable how genuine Trench really was about this endeavour has been questioned and some have suggested that he only launched this as a PR exercise and that he already had a very different plan in mind. Ultimately the key issue he faced was the fact that there were around 3,000 of the estate tenants or their dependents receiving aid through the workhouse. This would cost the Marcus of Lansdowne around £5 per person per year in poor rate taxes or in total about £15,000 a year. This was on an estate where the rent at best was only about £10,000 per year. The solution in Trench's mind was to clear the estate of these poor people, which would reduce the tax bill but also allow for the amalgamation of their small farms into larger, more profitable holdings. This would leave the estate on a sound economic footing as it moved into the later 19th century. To achieve this, he proposed that Marcus of Lansdowne should pay for as many tenants as would leave the estate to go to North America. Now, Trench couldn't do this of his own volition. This cost a lot of money, so he needed the permission and agreement of his employer. And having drawn up a detailed plan, he travelled to England in November 1850. He spent five days at Bowood House in Wiltshire, a vast mansion and country residence of the Marquis of Lansdowne. There, surrounded by opulent splendour, Trench laid out his plan which would resolve the financial problems of the Kerry estate. But this plan also involved moving thousands of people as if they were just numbers on a balanced sheet. He estimated the overall cost to be somewhere in the region of thirteen to £14,000 pounds. and after five days of discussions the scheme was agreed and the Marcus of Lansdowne put up an initial £8,000 pounds to get it underway. This plan was ambitious unquestionably far-reaching. But it was also dangerous. Offering to fund emigration to his tenants was not in itself problematic, as we'll see many wanted to leave. But the fact that Lansdowne and Trench were going to totally reorganise the estate during a famine was troubling, because this could not be affected solely through emigration, as we will see.
1: Hold up!
2: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash History. Today, to get 10% off your first month. That's help, com slash Irish History. Only a few months after his return to Kerry, Trench launched the scheme and tenants volunteered in large numbers. Through the following 24 months or so, 3,500 people emigrated to the USA. Eventually, a total of 4,600 people were shipped to North America under Trench's scheme at a cost of £17,400. Judging the pros and cons of this scheme is very difficult. The subject divided contemporaries. Manny railed against Trench and the Marcus of Lansdowne, then a member of the Liberal government, claims that he was quote-unquote exterminating the population were common. However, there's no doubt once the people left the estate, they would never see the communities they had grown up in again. However, while the motivation of Trench and his employer was unquestionably to improve the estate and its financial position, these interests dovetailed with many of the tenants who wanted to emigrate but were too poor to do so. It's worth remembering that Ireland in and around this time, this is the early 1850s, was utterly devastated and particularly in Kerry where Blight had returned in 1849. The future for these people was utterly bleak. On arriving in New York, They had nothing and they congregated in one of the city's worst slums, the notorious Five Points in lower Manhattan. However, while it appeared utterly vile to outsiders, few could appreciate the horrors these people had left behind. For the tenants themselves who had escaped Ireland, the fact that they could not only earn a living but also save money in New York was something unimaginable back home. Now some of their stories are covered in the episode on the famine Irish in the USA. However, while they may have been happy to go, William Stuart Trench's motivations were, as I've said already, dangerous. Because when he pursued his goal of clearing the estate of tenants through other means, it had catastrophic consequences. While Trench was very proud of his emigration scheme, he always claimed,
4: I was accused of clearing land by eviction. I had not evicted a single tenant nor sent one person away except by the earnest entreaty of the emigrant himself.
0: This, however, was not true. The fact he described the tenants as a miserable race who lived in miserable hovels and likened his work to cleaning a stable was revealing as to his general attitude toward the tenants and some of those who did not emigrate were treated appallingly. Contrary to his claims, he did in fact evict tenants. In September 1850, well over a 100 people were evicted from the Marcus of Lansdowne's lands at Monument Farm near Lixnaw in North Kerry. Far worse was to follow. Once he managed to remove large numbers of tenants through the emigration scheme, Trench ruled over the Lansdowne estate in a despotic manner. From the early 1850s, tenants who married without his permission faced eviction. This was a move to control subdivision and also to achieve this end in what was nothing short of cruel. A similar punishment awaited anyone who gave shelter to an evicted tenant or a pauper in their house. This left those who had survived the famine, petrified, and for those who were evicted, they were not only homeless, but they then turned into a pariah in their own community. They were total outcasts. No one would help them in fear of facing eviction themselves. This trench hoped would force the evicted people to leave the Lansdowne estate, where they would essentially become someone else's problem. This policy led to a most horrific incident outside the town of Cahar-Savine in early 1851. A 12-year-old boy, Dennis Shea, found himself as one of these outcasts when he and his mother were evicted from their home near Cahar Savine. What exactly happened to his mother after the eviction is not clear but young Dennis had to find shelter on his own so he arrived at the door of his aunt and uncle Judith and Michael Donoghue who themselves were lodgers in the house of a farmer. Trench had given specific orders that this boy, Dennis Shea, was not to be given shelter given he had been evicted and that Donoghues were fearful of helping him. From their perspective, the risk was clear, given the boy's grandmother had already been evicted for letting him into her house. When he was seen around their home, Judith donahue this 12-year-old boy's aunt, fearing eviction, came out and attacked him with the handle of a pitchfork in the hope of driving him away. Then her husband Michael went out and beat the child again. After this, the 12-year-old staggered around the surrounding houses pleading for help. Eventually a neighbour brought the child back to the Donahues. This led to a further fight with the bloodied child being pushed back and forth as Judith and Michael refused to have anything to do with their nephew. They eventually successfully forced him into the garden and there he was left bloodied and whimpering. Through the following night young Dennis Shea died from exposure, starvation and the beatings he had received. Clearly Dennis was the ultimate victim in this story, but understanding the blame is more complex. Judith and Michael Donoghue wielded the weapons that delivered the injuries to their young nephew. However, Dr. Morris Spotswood, who carried out the post-mortem, was of the belief that the injuries would not have killed the child if he had been able to find shelter. Furthermore, the fact that the boy was starving compounded the situation. In many ways, His case symbolised the final stage of the famine in many communities where continued starvation and eviction were wreaking havoc. When the case finally went to trial in August 1851, Judith and Michael Donoghue were found guilty, but the judge acknowledged the complexities of the situation in his sentencing. He accepted Trench's threat of eviction over anyone who would have accepted the young boy in as a mitigating circumstance. The couple were convicted of manslaughter and received two years hard labour. What is most important, perhaps, though, from the story of Kenmare is why all this happened. Whether the assisted emigration or indeed the draconian rules trench enforced, they were all coming from the same place. This was a desire to restructure the Marcus of Lansdowne's estate, coupled with the view that poor tenants were little more than livestock, just another resource that could be used and discarded at will. This was not unique to Kenmare, and indeed, there were far worse landlords and land agents than William Stuart Trench, as we will see. Indeed, a revolution of sorts was underway in rural Ireland that saw communities that had survived the horrors of famine destroyed, prolonging the misery of many. The Marcus of Lansdowne was, it goes without saying, not the only landlord to restructure his estate during the Great Famine. In the episode An Eye for an Eye Evictions and Assassinations, that's part 18 of the series, we looked at evictions that had gotten underway in 1847. Indeed, in the context of some of those evictions, what happened in Kenmare on the estate of the Marquess of Lansdowne was actually orderly. Even factoring in the brutality of the story of Dennis Shea, it paled in comparison to the chaotic and often deadly plans enacted elsewhere. Among the most notorious assisted emigration schemes was that undertaken by Captain Dennis Mahon on the Strokestown estate in Roscommon. He paid for 1,490 of his tenants to emigrate. However, what can only be described as a penny-pinching approach contributed to around half of those people dying en route to Canada or in quarantine stations in the St. Lawrence River when they arrived. This was only one of several factors that would eventually lead to Mahan's death late in Black 47. In County Clare, events were arguably even more cruel. Some of the most brutal evictions of the famine had begun there in earnest in 1848 and would continue well into the 1850s. As mentioned in previous episodes, thousands of tenants were evicted, most of them from the Vandeleur estate. In total between 1847 and 1850, somewhere in the region of 16 to 19,000 evictions took place in Clare. Further up the coast in Mayo, over 25,000 evictions took place. The Earl of Lucan, who later gained notoriety for his role in the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War, evicted thousands, again destroying their houses and amalgamating their farms into cattle ranches. They were extremely traumatic and violent events. Of the hundreds, indeed thousands of evictions that took place, one incident in Milik, County Clare, just gives you some sense of what this might have been like had we been there. In March 1850, large numbers of tenants were evicted on the Marcus of Cunningham's estate at Meleek. To carry out the eviction, a group of 20 or 30 what were known as wreckers, essentially men, who would enforce the eviction, were assembled. Armed with crowbars, these men were hired not only to physically remove the tenants, but also to destroy their homes, which would stop them or anyone else reoccupying them. The spirit of the people to resist was long gone and only 12 policemen arrived to monitor the eviction. A journalist present noted that only a few years previously a force of five times this number would have been needed. The eviction devastated the community. Among those cast out was John Donoghue, a blacksmith who had been evicted for the third time that year. He had set up his forge in the ruins of a house and continued to supply what was an essential trade for the community. With his eviction, the parish of Melik was finally left without a blacksmith. However, the most tragic aspect of this eviction was the case of a woman known as the Widow Larkin who lived with her daughter and two grandchildren. The widow was dying and pleaded to be left in her house saying she would not trouble them long. Death was near. The wreckers moved in regardless. The woman was carried out and left outside her home until her neighbours made a hut from the ruins of her house. This process also saw some in the community turn on their neighbours. James Quinlivan, who lived at Woodcock Hill, Meleek, received a temporary reprieve for his house when he agreed to provide accommodation for four of the so-called wreckers who remained in Milique after the eviction to ensure no one tried to rebuild their homes. Indeed, a few days after the eviction, these wreckers went around destroying the huts people had made from the ruins of their houses. For those who had been evicted, there was no compensation, no tickets to America, They were trapped in Clare and the workhouse with its meagre rations and deadly diseases was probably the best they could hope for. In total well over 250,000 people were evicted during the famine, most in the final years of the Great Hunger. While we have seen why landlords were taking this course of action, they were not the only ones responsible however. There were what we might call greater forces at work and to understand this we need to return to London. And look at the British government's overall reaction to the final years of the Great Famine because then we're going to start to tease out how and why they actually sought to encourage evictions. From late 1847, British politicians made it very clear there would be no more major interventions in the famine such as the Soup Kitchens or Temporary Relief Act which had fed 3 million people the previous summer. Ireland was essentially on its own it had to fund its own famine relief. Many in England actually considered they'd been overly generous. Charles Wood, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, when referring to famine aid, had said in April 1848, with no hint of irony or humour,
3: So much was never done for any country by another in the history of the world. The starvation has risen from the misconduct of the Irish, not from any neglect on the part of government.
0: This sentiment from Wood as Chancellor of the Exchequer and one of the most influential members of the government was revealing as to how the Liberal government would respond or perhaps wouldn't respond in the later years of the Great Hunger. However, as they tried to extract themselves from providing famine relief, Ireland reached a crisis point around Christmas 1848. Since the late autumn of the previous year, The island was, theoretically at least, supposed to be supporting itself and funding its own famine relief through the collection of poor rates. Despite the fact Ireland was nearly bankrupt, large amounts of this tax had been collected. However, it was still insufficient. While Dublin, Belfast and the wealthier coastal region in the east showed signs of recovery by late 1848, the situation in the west, as we have seen, remained utterly dire. These regions were too poor and the numbers in need of aid too great for a system of local taxation to be able to meet the demand. They had struggled through 1848 with the support of outside agencies and charities and then limited sporadic and occasional intervention from the government. However, by late 1848, as the government were adamant they would not continue to fund famine relief and charities were running out of money, one in five poor law unions in Ireland, mainly in the West, simply could not survive on their own, They needed financial support not just to function, but to keep the population alive. The Earl of Clarendon, the Lord Lieutenant, articulated the situation to Charles Trevelyan in the Treasury in December 1848, leaving London under no illusion just to how serious the situation facing the west of Ireland was. How are the next six months to be got through in the south and west? I'm at my wits end to imagine. The reports of our own officers are bad enough, heaven knows, but the statements I've received from credible eyewitnesses exceed all I've ever heard of horrible misery, except perhaps that of shipwrecked mariners on a yacht or desert island. If Clarendon hoped he would get a commitment from the government to alleviate this situation, he was gravely mistaken. Trevelyan's superior, Charles Wood, as we have heard, already believed England had been overly generous in terms of famine aid. It was hardly a surprise then that the government refused to adopt any policy that would involve long-term intervention, something that was clearly needed. However, it should be said that Charles Wood was not alone in advocating non-intervention in the face of the immediate crisis. Even had he supported action, there was no way he could have gotten any long-term plan through Parliament which had now firmly swung against any famine aid to Ireland Instead, Charles Wood and the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, agreed they would ask Parliament for a final £50,000 for Ireland. While that might sound like a considerable money, in the context it was pitiful. Prince Albert, the Queen's husband, received an annual stipend of £30,000. The sum of £50,000 would only last a few months in Ireland. Even this paltry sum faced opposition in Parliament. Nevertheless, the government managed to garner enough support and the money was made available in February 1849. However, this only kicked the problem down the road a few months as Parliament made it clear they would not be intervening again. It wouldn't be long before Ireland reached another crisis point. Debates did continue but the focus now shifted towards adopting measures that would rid London of this issue of Irish famine relief permanently. By April, the £50,000 granted by Parliament earlier in the year had been spent and the poor law commissioners who oversaw the running of the workhouses had no idea how they would continue. Many workhouses in the West had no money and they were now really staring into the abyss. Furthermore, the numbers dependent on their aid was actually increasing. Those receiving outdoor relief stood at 423,000 in January and would reach 768,000 in June. If something wasn't done, many of these people in the bankrupt poor law unions in the West would starve. Private charities were in no position now to step into the breach like they had in previous years. The solution proposed by the government was entirely unsatisfactory. In London, they devised a new strategy of sorts called Rate in Aid. This would see Further poor rates collected in the parts of Ireland that were emerging from famine, and this would be used to fund famine relief in the parts of the island that were bankrupt and facing starvation. This made a total mockery of the notion that Ireland was supposedly an equal part of the United Kingdom. It clearly wasn't. While the London government was willing to treat it as an equal part when it benefited England, when Ireland needed aid, it was treated as a separate entity and allowed to suffer on its own. Unsurprisingly, rate in aid faced widespread opposition in Ireland from several quarters in a terrible reflection of the time. Some wealthier people in the Northeast and East, which were emerging from famine, didn't want to help those still suffering in the West. Some protest meetings inferred that problems in the West were rooted in the fact that those still starving were just lazy and unwilling to help themselves. A position reflecting similar attitudes in England, despite protests rate in aid was enforced the money was collected and transferred to the west of ireland to support the starving poor in the final years of the great hunger however there can be no question the prevarication of the government in 1849 cost lives the estimated death rate for 1849 was the second highest year of the entire famine only surpassed by black 47 while the 1849 figure includes the thousands who perished from cholera the government's failure to intervene and adopt a coherent strategy was unquestionably also to blame. While the debate over rate and aid might give the impression the government approach was arbitrary and somewhat random, given it was a departure from previous strategies, pretty much all policies were in fact shaped by what can be described as a dangerous ideological and economic underpinning. While I will examine different aspects of this in great detail in the next episode, in this show, I want to focus on just how there was something of a coherent tread through all these policies that actually incentivized evictions. Charles Wood, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, had long been adamant spending on famine relief in Ireland would be kept to a minimum. But he also had other goals which he hoped would be fulfilled by this approach as well. He saw the famine as a great opportunity to transform Irish society and the economy and saw the eviction of poorer tenants as part of this. In general, he supported the view of Lord Palmerston, the Foreign Secretary, who also had large estates in Ireland, who had said in March 1848,
3: It is useless to disguise the truth that any great improvement in the social system of Ireland must be founded upon an extensive change in the present state of agrarian occupation and that this change necessarily implies a long, continued and systematic ejectment of smallholders and squatting
0: cottiers. Palmerston and most senior figures in government, by the later years of the famine, were adamant they would use this crisis, created by the famine, to revolutionise the rural economy in Ireland. They believed in creating a situation that would incentivise the eviction of these smallholders and cottiers. After the tenants were gone, they wanted farms to be amalgamated into larger, more profitable holdings. This, they believed, would modernise the Irish economy and much of their reactions to the famine had this in mind. It goes without saying that this was dangerous and the ruthlessness of some advocates of this approach was shocking. They had no regard for what happened to the poor. Benjamin Jowett, the master of Balliol College at Oxford University, later reflected on a conversation he had had during the famine with the highly influential theorist and economist Nassau William Sr.
3: I have always felt a certain horror of political economists since I heard one of them say that the famine in Ireland would not kill more than a million people and that would scarcely
0: be enough to do much good. Now context is important here. The so-called quote-unquote good Nassau Senior is referring to is that one million deaths was not enough to allow the necessary restructuring of rural Irish society. Nevertheless, the attempt to achieve this restructuring was seen in policies such as the Quarter Acre Clause, which forced tenants off the land. You might remember this made the test of destitution to enter workhouses a quarter acre of land meaning if they wanted to receive famine aid pretty much all farmers had to give up their farms first. The main legislation of that year however was something called the Poor Law Extension Act and this also had the goal of incentivizing evictions in mind. This act had lumped all famine relief onto the poor law system a move which essentially made the poor tenants, as we saw in the case of the Marcus of Lansdowne, a liability, which naturally made landlords want to evict them. Other policies also served to nudge this process along. For example, the Corn Laws, which had maintained corn at an artificially high price, had been repealed in early 1846, although many in Ireland had called for this measure. In the belief that it would lower the price of food, it had an unforeseen consequence of incentivizing eviction, by making landlords switch from growing grains to cattle farming, which required bigger farms and less tenants. Finally, the policies of the later years of the famine, which continued what essentially amounted to a policy of non-intervention, served to intensify the financial crisis facing tenants and landlords, and this further incentivized eviction. Charles Wood, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, had argued intervention would serve to only prolong the expense and consequent expenditure by enabling the smallholders to hang on. While there's little doubt that Irish agriculture was in need of restructuring, particularly once blight had revealed the dangers of relying so heavily on the potato, implementing these changes so bluntly during the Great Famine was obviously dangerous and cost so many lives. And in the end, the results of this revolution were very debatable. William Donnelly and William Wilde, The census commissioners in 1851 seemed to think the economy had been modernised. They summarised that census of 1851 and the huge population drop in the following terms.
3: The results of the Irish census of 1851 are, on the whole, satisfactory, demonstrating as they do the general advancement of the country. We have shown in the course of our observations that the worst class of houses is being replaced by a better, that a smaller proportion of families is dependent on their own manual labour for support.
0: They could also have added that the houses were improved only because many of the worst class of housing they mentioned had been destroyed in evictions and their inhabitants dead or scattered. However, that influential ideologue I mentioned earlier, Nassau Williams Sr., who had predicted so crudely not enough people would die to effect change, was not convinced Irish society had changed much for the better by the end of the famine. He arrived in Ireland in the 1850s and commented,
3: I doubt whether any great real alteration in the habits of the people has taken place. They still depend mainly on the potato. They still depend rather on the occupation of land than on the wages of labour. They still erect for themselves the hovels in which they dwell. They are still eager to subdivide and to sublet." They are still the tools of their priests, and their priests are still ignorant of the economic laws on which the welfare of the labouring classes depends.
0: There's little doubt that for many of the poor, the situation they lived in remained unchanged. Perhaps in some estates like that of the Marcus of Lansdowne, they were even more fearful about what lay ahead than they had been before the Great Hunger, given eviction was a very real threat. Whatever one makes of the attempts to restructure the economy, there's no doubt that these people were unquestionably The losers in this revolution. This episode has brought us very close to the end of the story of the Great Hunger. We do have a few episodes left, including one which will look at how the Great Hunger finally drew to a close, and another on its legacy. However, I feel the logical follow up to this show is to tackle one of the most enduring questions of the Great Hunger whether all this constituted an attempted genocide against the Irish people, a claim often made, so that will be the focus of the next episode on The Great Hunger. This will be tricky to get right so it might take slightly longer to make but I do have a fascinating episode coming up in about 10 days or 2 weeks on something totally different so you'll have that in the meantime. Until then, Sloan.